What's happening, everybody? We are back for another episode of the Carbide Podcast. Thanks again to our friends at Woody's Traction for continuing to help make this show possible. When you dig into the history of snowmobile racing, there's a common denominator that seemingly drives all major trends in the sport. Great snowmobile minds. Whether it's on the track or on the bench, these individuals elevate the sport solely with their creativity and ingenuity, an area that can make or break a racing career. You ask any team manager or mechanic in the sport for their top five sleds of all time, solid chance that this man's hands have touched at least three of them. He's one of the greatest minds in our sport, and it was awesome to be able to chat with him. So please enjoy my interview with Mr. Tim Bender. And gaining ground is Tim Bender on the Exciter. Tim Bender found a little extra strength on the inside and comes right out. Down low is Bender, and Bender looks back and looks up, sees the checkers, waves his hand, he's got the victory. It's Tim Bender winning it at And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast presented by Woody's Traction. I appreciate you guys tuning in, as always. He's too humble to say it, but we have an absolute legend on the line tonight. He's a multi-time champion in the OSRF and USSA series. He's a four-time champion at Eagle River. He's a championship-winning crew chief and team manager in ISOC, and he's a snowmobile Hall of Famer. He's Tim Bender. How are we doing, Tim? Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I appreciate you joining us tonight. There's a lot to get into in your career, so we're going to do our best to, to cover it all. Sounds good. <laughs> So let's go back to the beginning, if we can, Tim. And I want to know, did you grow up a snowmobile guy or did you grow up a stock car guy? Actually, I was both. Um, okay. My, my dad got a, was in the concrete business and uh, somebody owed him some money and they they also had a snowmobile dealership. Mm. They paid him with a, a snowmobile in 1964, <laughs> summer 1964. So uh, I remember distinctly in the summer 1964, my brother and I were on the back of the snowmobile. My dad was driving. We went right down the bare road with it. We didn't even know it wasn't supposed to be, but we never saw one before. And uh, so uh, that was my introduction to snowmobiles. And and then uh, then car racing. My dad. We grew up going to stock car races Friday, Saturday, and Sunday every week. So we were definitely car racing fans. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Did you kind of have like? Did you prefer one or the other as a kid, or was it kind of mixed? Uh, it was so different. It was uh, mm-hmm. snowmobiles were easier, more affordable, but the race cars were fun too. <laughs> so, when did you first start uh, racing sleds? Then, um, I was supposed to start in 1971, mm-hmm. and uh, my brother was going to give me a ride to a local race, and uh, I didn't drive at the time. It was 14 or so, and and. Uh, he, he overslept and didn't get out of bed when I, was, when I needed him to to get me a ride up there. So I decided to ride there myself. It was close by. On the way there, I hit a covert pipe and bent the spindle at the end of my, my, my racing. <laughs> so I, I actually didn't get going until 1974. Um, an SR-292 I bought, the 73 SR-292. And a uh, local, local dealer had had one, and I did some racing with it. And I bought that and raced in the Eastern Division in the USA. Oh, okay. Did you uh, start like in the junior classes or did you like shoot super uh, high and try and get up there right away? 
I was in a, uh, odd, odd one, I think they call it, odd one. Mm, okay. So it was definitely not junior. <laughs> um, what was kind of the racing scene, at least locally in uh, in New York? Like, what was it like back then around that time? Was it was it super popular and competitive, or was it just kind of regional? What was it like back then? Well, I was fortunate enough to be close to Weedsport. We're two hours away from Weedsport. They raced every Thursday night at Weedsport, and then they raced every weekend on the Eastern Circuit. So we we go to a typical week would be we go to Thursday nights at Weedsport, race at Weedsport, um, win a couple hundred dollars, come home on Friday, go to school usually late, and then uh, the uh, the weekend we go to Eastern Division race in Maine or or Vermont, New Hampshire, all of these coast. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, it sounds like, you know, some of the guys I talked to racing in your era, like there was, there was races. If you wanted to race any weekend, you probably could. There was a race somewhere. Sounds like. Yeah. That's the way this was. Eastern Division was, it was, I don't know how many guys there was, but it was a ton of guys. Growing up, did you kind of have a, a mechanical aptitude towards your sleds at a young age or did that come kind of later? Um, my brother was, uh, was in the fabrication, ended up in the fabrication business, but he, uh, he, I learned more from my brother Bob than, than anybody, but he, uh, I, I would say that I did, but he was more, more mechanical than I was even. Um, you could, you could see things move before it was moving. Hmm. When you're looking at suspension or, or whatever, um, he was, he was quite skilled in the fabrication building. He actually built our own sleds from the ground up in, uh, 75, 74, 75, we uh, built tunnels and everything. Mm. And uh, he was a, a ski called the Cobra Ski, which was a ski was, the suspension was all in the ski. And it was the big advantage of the Cobra Ski was, there was no back of the leaf spring to hit the clutch. So you mm. put the engine down low, lower. You get the engine down super low. And, and uh, we did really well with it. Cobra Ski is on our bond He raced mod two, I raced mod three. Mm. And uh, we went on quite a bit with those. Yeah, one of the cooler parts about kind of guys from your era is there's just, there was a lot of ingenuity back then. You know, a lot of you guys were, were handy and crafty, and there was a lot of a lot of trick sleds came out of that time just from, from creativity, it seems. Yeah, there was. Uh, it was a fun time, but actually, when things were that, the sport was that young, and the equipment is changing as so much every year it was a good time to be racing snow guys <laughs> so when did you kind of make the that first real venture out to, to racing in the midwest um it was probably uh, 1977 i think um old van had uh, been selling cobra skis and he saw us winning races out here with him he decided to bring us out to you river my brother and i and mm-hmm. he paid our way out and paid our expenses and uh, out there, my brother Bob got second in uh, mod two, and I got second in mod three. Neither one of us won, because <laughs> he brought us there to do. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a, it was a rude awakening, but Eagle River was so different than any place we ever raced before. Mm-hmm. It was uh, definitely a challenge, but I got to really love it. Uh, was the, I mean, you mentioned the, the challenge in the track for sure. These days, there's a huge difference in talent level between Midwest and what you see on the East Coast. Back then, was it 
far like spread far apart like that too or was the east coast pretty comparable to racing in the midwest talent wise i'd say it was pretty close to the same because we had guys like uh brad hewings and uh herbancy and you know, both in the hall of fame also mm-hmm. um it was kind of guys racing every, every week out here thursday night in Beatsport and Thursday, Thursday night, i can't stress enough how important that was to us because we learned so much there and uh we used to go up there and Help them make ice and, and trade for for testing on, on the track, and uh, that's why I learned to hate making making ice. <laughs> Freezing to death out there, put the fire hose water down, water down. <laughs> um, so I, I never really was fine at making snow or making ice, but uh, um, and you already get the less I like the cold weather. So it's fair. It's fair. So I mean, for the next for the next couple years, were you basically? I mean, you're still based out east, but were, was it kind of like a staple on your schedule that, hey, I'm going to make a trip out to Eagle River every year and, and race that, or was it still kind of a one-off event for you? No, it was uh, turned into a, you had to burn the, originally I started running OSRF, which okay. is Ontario, mm-hmm. and the uh, USSA Eastern Division. And then we, when we moved on to the uh, Eagle River in, in the Midwest, race the center of the division. And uh, there was a lot more, it seemed like there was so many more races at the time, uh, mm-hmm. like hundreds. But uh, well, it definitely was more over races at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we we uh, transitioned to the central division pretty well, I'd say, and uh, competition was, was very similar. Mm-hmm. What was kind of the progression like as you're working up basically to the till the full-on pro level? I mean, you kind of jumped in at a pretty high level anyway, but what was the progression like getting to that peak level um, in the Midwest? Like super, super competitive? Were you cleaning house? Like what was it like for you? Um, it was super competitive. Uh, mm-hmm. We were in 78, we were riding SSRs, and uh, we was cool, but they were we didn't work very good. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but we had some trouble with the front end. I know in the Eagle River, I couldn't get a, I couldn't get a qualifying lap in for the World Championship because the mm. front end kept a break, breaking. Right end was breaking the front end. I remember taking him off and changing it around in the, in the pits there and throwing one on the ground that came out of the slide. The guy, later on, I found out that the guy from Polaris had picked it up, <laughs> took it back to the shop, and they, they analyzed it. It was like made out of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's funny how... Uh, Later in my career, as I as I moved to help in Polaris guys, um, all this stuff like like that came out in the uh, in the end. But uh, like <laughs> Tom Rager and and guys like that. Yeah, I'm sure it was it was kind of funny when you you know we'll get into it later. But I'm sure it was kind of funny when you first came back to Polaris and you're running into all these old names and there's all the old stories are coming back up. I'm sure it was fun. Yes, it was. <laughs> So we'll get into some some you know later on pro pro career stuff and F three for Eagle River in a minute, but you know outside of some of those major iconic moments that you're well known for at Eagle River, what are some other like super major events and and races that stand out for you throughout your your race career? Um, we're in places like Owen Sound and Corsa Cup at Peterborough, mm-hmm. Adirondack Cup in Boonville. Uh, muscle Machine Shootout in Alexandria in 1983. Uh, Pontiac Silver Bowl in uh, the 82 SRX 500 that Yamaha never built. Mm. Uh, I one of those there and won. Um, probably my most satisfying race I ever had, ever won, was uh, in the early 80s in the Snowcross race. Mm. 
my, my toughest competition was Gerard Carpick in the fall. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at Owen Sound. They ran a snowcross. And uh, they, uh, it, for the little, I got about a third place hole shot at the start. Gerard and the fall were in front of me. And I passed both of them and went in. And later on, as I became friends with Gerard, he told me, this is years later, that they, were, they had an agreement, they, they fought had an agreement, that one of them got in front of me, he would hold me back when the other win the race. Uh, so that was pretty satisfying. <laughs> and I beat them. It's funny, because Gerard and I are good friends now. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I always considered him as the best of the best, especially on terrain. <laughs> well, it's funny, like, going through some of the history, like, just your your kind of side career a little bit in, in snowcross. Cause everybody talks about the ovals, but you know, in that time period, a lot of guys were just racing whatever was available. You see guys in ovals, guys in cross country, guys in snowcross, they just race everything. So it was interesting to read that there was like a little bit of a snowcross career for you as well. Yeah. I, uh, actually snowcross today was much different than it was then. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Jump, jump and bump ride. But, uh, <laughs> yep. um, Back when, even back when uh, like we first started on the uh, Eastern Division, some of the uh, the tracks we, we, we I enjoyed snowcross racing because it was sure got to show your your strength a little bit, mm-hmm. and where where the uh, old race was more just about speed. Yep. But uh, they raced a race at uh, Yamaha R and D Minnesota one time. Mm-hmm. They raced in, in, in snow and dirt there. And that was a little ball. It was my first introduction to, to really snow, snow cross racing, like it turned out to be at, at uh, Duluth. Was that uh, those first couple of years in snow, like, you know, dabbling in snow cross? Were you, was it right on the phaser immediately, or what was the first sled that you were riding on a, on a quote unquote snow cross track? It was the uh, SR5. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, in, in 1980. 80, Three, I think we started running SR5. Actually, before that, um, we ran a 81 SRX. Mm-hmm. We started the, the muscle machine shootout at, uh, at uh, Alexandria first year. The second year, I ended up running on SR5. Oh, yeah. My my back just hurts just thinking about that, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, so does mine. <laughs> so I said, uh, used to, I, was, I was working for Yamaha for a while there mm-hmm. uh, doing testing. We were racing, we were riding the one SRX 440 and uh, SRX 500. And uh, out in, uh, was, uh, I think the name of it, it was uh, West Yellowstone. And uh, um, I remember riding 250 miles a day. We had to put it 250 miles on a day to, to test the belts, test rear suspension. I think I had about three inches of travel at the most. The bumps were foot and a half deep, and you're just right trying to get up on top of the bumps, and so you take you take the pounding. But uh, my back still hurts today. I'm mad. <laughs> oh man! Well, I mean, you kind of mentioned all the work you were doing helping Yamaha and R and D, but kind of in some of these peak years of your of your racing career in general, like what was the biggest thing you think in your eyes, at least? you were always chasing as a, as a, as a tester and as a tuner, like were you guys always chasing horsepower, traction, stability? Like what was the, what was the main thing? Oh, uh, one thing I was always concentrated on was 
I could deal with it on the throttle and come out the corner. Mm-hmm. I achieved that by changing the angle of the front torque arm, angle and height of the front torque arm, the way to put a torque into the track. And uh, flattery run into less reaction, more angry run into more reaction, obviously. So uh, making the front torque arm adjustable was, was some big thing. Um, as far as we had adjustment in the front and the back of it, so you can raise the whole thing and lower the front on it. <clears throat> but uh, my uh, my dyno guy, Jim Sakala, Dyno Tech, would tell you that we were spending most of the time trying to find horsepower in the dyno. Mm-hmm. We spent hours and hours and hours and days on the dyno. But uh, it was, we spent the most time on, on traction with the track. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you if you look at like an average week, let's say during that time period, like, you know, you're you're full on racing. This is kind of your main gig. How much of your week was spent, you think, testing and, and tinkering on a sled? Like, were you 40, 50, 60 hours a week working on sleds? Oh, we were working that much, yes. Really? But more and more, more maintenance and, mm. and anything, because there wasn't any ice out here, first of all. Ice is hard to find. Mm. And mid ice, it would be so much snow on it that it would be, wouldn't even ride on it. Or the ice was so uneven from having snow on it and blowing off. So we didn't have a lot of t- test time. And then, uh, in fact, when back when my when first started, we used to test them by father's shop driveway because it was icy. It's probably the fine. <laughs> I can do a whole shot down the driveway on one inch ice, you know. But uh, back in those days, my father was uh, was around quite a bit, and uh, he he uh, was a snowmobile. He got polio when he was a kid, mm-hmm. and which left him with no strength in his leg. So he uh, thrived on motorsports, mm. and uh, that's when I uh, I said we we went to motorsports. We were race track as a kid, and uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday wasn't a time when we weren't at the race. I mean, it seemed like he wasn't racing himself. He did race himself in the, in the early or late forties, early fifties. He raced a stock car, mm-hmm. but uh, he was uh, infamous as far as good or bad. Whoever he was, they called him Wild Bill. <laughs> and uh, he was he was kind of a maniac when it came to snowmobiling and first speed riding, you know, riding all the time. He had a 669 TNT in 1969. He raced a guy with a 433 Yamaha. The guy beat him. He instantly went and bought a 433 Yamaha for himself. That's that's 433. <laughs> and uh, the uh, that thing would spin forever. And a grouse of bars were only about a quarter inch tall on the track. Mm-hmm. Spin forever, but it was fast back in the day. <laughs> I learned a lot having sons like that around, being around sons like that. Kind of, you, you constantly had to re, rebuild them. Back in those days, they didn't last nearly as long as they do today. And uh, we spent more time rebuilding bogey wheels and and uh, bogey wheels. You guys don't even know what a bogey wheel is today. Yeah, it's, that's what you hear from, from that era. I don't know the actual conversion, but guys are always like, yeah, you'll you'll spend – twice or maybe three times as long fixing the sled for as long as you rode it that day at oh, least oh yeah i remember i remember cabling the track back together mm-hmm. on those early sleds because they would tear so easily yep yeah. <laughs> so for you at least on the and i guess we'll open it up i was going to say the oval side but it could really be any discipline that you raced on a sled what was the most competitive class for you that you raced in just like you know could be numbers, could be the fast guys in it. What was the most competitive class? Um, Formula 3 was competitive, but I wouldn't say it was the most competitive. Um, 
but uh, probably Formula 56. Mm-hmm. Although that Formula 56 was kind of a joke because it was, it was they weren't in 456 horsepower by a long shot. That's easy for me to say now, but <laughs> but uh, we were pushing the limit. But there was a guy that was it was a combination of things that they could do. They had they came up with a program for 56 horsepower. They had, they had all the tricks down. But uh, that's why again when I uh, when I beat her there with ASQ was definitely faster than the Yamaha was. But I when I had a point in there it was so satisfying because of that. But uh, um, I would say. Formula 56 was probably more competitive. Mm-hmm. Was competitive because there was there more guys in it. And it was you do anything you wanted with the chassis, so that was fun. In uh, 70, or I'm sorry, 84, when we ran uh, phasers, um, Steve Hull had one, and Angus Linger had one, and and Bobby Donnie had one, and I had one. We all built our own lightweight phaser, as, as Steve Hull was called, phaser light. Mm-hmm. And that uh, and uh, that way, which turned into being the Singer SX the next year. But uh, that year, I had that you know, battle at Eagle River with Steve and Steve and Bobby, who was two of, two of them and, and me, a battle or an old point hard, and uh, and another point in that. But uh, um, mine was a shorter track than everybody else's was, and it had 103 inch track, and it had a, a terribly, terrible. Um, bucking sideways in the corner because it was twitchy, <laughs> but it was fast. Yeah. So I, I remember at uh, Alexander at one of the first races, it just about came off it a couple of times because it was tipping up so bad in the corner, but I ended up winning that too. <laughs> it's like I said earlier, I just it, it's cool to think back just back then of just the creativity. Like you guys were given a you know, depending on the class, but it was a pretty open rule book. And then a lot of you guys were just expert tuners and you're like, I'm going to build this freak of nature sled and it's going to be faster than yours. Like, I just love the creativity. Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was great. It was a great way for Yamaha to do it because they ended up with a, a great platform for the, which turned out to be the SX the next year, which we built 50 of for, for the Yamaha. And, uh, but they had played some of each guy's sled. In fact, probably more about Bobby Dining than it did of mine. We ended up putting 112 inch or uh, 121 inch tracks up. And beside the suspension backs, we had a lot longer wheelbase and it was way more stable. Mm-hmm. How much of your, I, guess, I mean, you mentioned Yamaha, but you know, during this time period, you're getting heavily involved with Yamaha and this R&D stuff, but I mean, how much of your equipment was basically driving some of the changes on the production side for Yamaha? Like, I would imagine you were coming up with a lot of really cool ideas that they were using at the factory. Um, we used them here more than they used them at the factory. Mm. Here by, by 1984, um, Yamaha built a wide-body SR5. They had a program where you bought a, bought a sled from a dealer. They had to buy a chassis from Yamaha. You switch all the parts over from the, the narrow chassis to the wide chassis, and you sway bar and lower it from me. Mm. We, we built 50 of those. It was legal for the stock class, and uh, we did very well. That's why I won the uh, muscle machine shootout at Alexander with. And uh, the, uh, we probably had a, I don't say an advantage, but we had a little bit of advantage. So we, we built it, we actually built a sled. So we're, 
but not that I was any different than anybody else was, but it was a uh, test time and stuff. We had, we had a lot of test time, huh? which we could. And then about that time, we started going to Alaska with uh, Yamaha too, mm-hmm. and uh, testing out there and doing early testing at Thanksgiving time. And uh, but anyway, in 1984, we built a SR5, and then in 1985, Yamaha um, had us build a Phaser SX, which was a basically a Phaser uh, 1984 Phaser with a 1982 SRX front end on it, white front spray bar we built, uh, moved the track back, um, over around it was 112 to 100. 21, um, lengthened the tunnel on the back, painted it, signed the hoods, uh, and uh, put a cold air kit on them, which was out there, got the hot air out underneath the hood, put a cold air in, and uh, we basically built 50 of those. And unfortunately, that changed that, or ISR decided to change the rule because of that flood. Mm. They just built 500 after that, which killed me. Say the least, because <laughs> uh, I couldn't build 500 of them, and uh, and I took a, took a lot of money out of my pocket. I mean, you created a rule, Tim. Your performance yeah. basically built a rule. So there's, I mean, you got to be proud of that. You got to look at the rule book. There's a lot more than one rule for me. <laughs> <laughs> Probably have them. Oh man, uh, yeah, we we uh, we, we stretch the rules as much as we could, but. We got also recently too. So, I know it's it's became pretty common over the years too. But at least in in your era as well, was it really common? I mean, whether it was you or you know the walls would do it later on, where there's these guys that are super successful in racing with their own setups, and they effectively start selling it all to their not not just their competitors. Maybe they 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 cherry pick who they sell it to, but was it common back then as well, aside from yourself, of of top guys selling their kits to their competitors? Not everybody did, but like the Wall Brothers, Wall Brothers turned out a lot bigger than we were, but mm-hmm. um, we were doing the same basic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, Dermont and uh, Dave, uh, well, we built a front end on our Formula One sled. Had a, uh, it was, uh, I think we raced it in the, uh, on the one that you remember, we got a 340 Rotax in and uh, ended up in the Superman 2 class. We were leading the last lap and uh, went in the corner too hard and put and bombed out and left the track. And I think uh, Tim Dimmerman and, and uh, Keith Sloson got by me. And third. Mm. But uh, anyway, the front end on that sled was so, worked so good. It was two radius rods on the right hand side of the sled, was two radius rods like I normally had down this trailing arm. And the trailing arm from one trailing arm side to the other side of the sled was the second radius rod. And so the steering and the, and the radius rods on the left side were four or four inches wide. So uh, what I did is I took all the bump steer out of it, all the scrub out of it, and almost had something similar. Mm-hmm. There's a less independent bottom than mine was. And that thing worked so good. Um, the one uh, it I ran that cup with it a couple of times a couple of years in a row. And then I sold to a guy who wanted two or three more times after that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, that was, not for choice, not for question a little bit, but yeah, that was. <laughs> it's okay. We, 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 we do whatever we could do to stay, stay racing. Didn't have money to race. 
they weren't they weren't overly funded ever. Tell you that. But they have, <laughs> I have no no my old sled I had slow now to to continue racing. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I've I've always been curious with with guys like yourself or or Steve Hool. The, these guys that you know you take a lot of pride in some of the performance gains and kits that you've made for your sled. Is there any shame in just blatantly copying a competitor's setup, or is it kind of like, nah, man, I got to do what I got to do to win? Well, it's racing. It's racing like war. There's only two times when when uh, we got to do whatever you got to do to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, it's and when it comes to products and you're selling stuff, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. And I like to have not not have any too. That's the same as anybody else. Mm-hmm. But uh, and. and yeah, I'm sure it de- depends on the person, I'm I'm sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, back when uh, we were going to Alaska, I remember being in Alaska with Jim Kettinger. Jim Kettinger was a Yamaha race coordinator. We spent a lot of time on the road together and, and off. And uh, he was, uh, we were testing him on a lake up in, there we the brakes were the phaser wasn't known to have real good brakes on it. Mm-hmm. And uh um we were testing on that where you had to use a brake pretty hard to shut down or you went up the had up a bank and it was a road right there with a guardrail. And uh he kept uh kept saying just we'll just do a couple more, a couple more runs, a couple more runs. I said the brakes are running on brakes really stopped. I went up the went down the strip. No brakes at all. Up the hill, hit it, hit a stop sign or a speed limit sign at the top of the hill. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, but uh, my point was that uh, we that was for the phaser SX. We did a lot of testing in Alaska with it in the fall of '84. Hmm. And uh, so let's move into you know a major part of your oval career. Definitely. And we touched on it a little bit earlier with, with Eagle river, but these four straight wins from 85 through 88 in, in F3, you know, it's, it's very rare. We see basically repeat winners and, and to that level as well. You know, PJ's got it. Blaine Stevenson's got it. So in this era, was it still extremely rare to, to have guys show that level of dominance at Eagle river? Um, it was, uh, you know, we, we the class was four of my three started in the year before I before I won it the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, Bobby Donnie won it the first time, and then uh, Michael won it after I did. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but Mike won won a couple times I think, too, after that. But uh, yeah, I would say it was pretty unusual to do that. It wasn't it wasn't anything spectacular race wise, uh, and there's there's still one on YouTube you can find one. And some of them are on there. And uh, the one time that stands out to me was uh, one in the corner. I was running, not leading the race, I was probably third or so. One in the corner, and the front end washed out on me altogether. <laughs> I went up and hit the hay bales. But but Jim Appleson had hit hay bales in the other check right before I did. So they stopped the race for him. So they let me restart. I busted the windshield off the sled to get it. So he wasn't sticking up, jagging like a knife. And uh, Went back and then it got on a one one on a wind race, and uh, <laughs> it was uh, a little controversy on whether I should be out there or not because I crashed it one time, but, but uh, managed to, to <laughs> hit it. But uh, yeah, I, and then uh, 
It should have been a should have been another year where we went in there with a remix four. Mm-hmm. In '92, I was leading it going away, and ignition uh, failed on it, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> we had had some trouble with the ignition on a remix four earlier that year. It only sound; it wouldn't start. Um, couldn't be started for the final. But uh, after the river, MR was basically in that in that deal to win the river, and that was their main goal. Mm. And when we didn't win because it flood failed, they were sure that I wore it wrong because I built the wearing harnesses from a diagram they gave me. And uh, two days after the river, we did winning the river, but the FDs guys showed up here at my place and wanted to see the what, what we had. And he had a, he was he had run down the dyno. The uh, VMAX 4 engine on a dyno because they built the engines in Japan. We built the chassis here. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so he was he was sure that we wired something wrong on it. Well, it turned out that they had they had a, like a red and white wire and a green and white wire. They were, all they were switch those two wires it was wrong in the wiring diagram. They switched mm-hmm. those two wires and it fixed the whole thing, <laughs> which which killed me because you know, I would have done something we could have done at the track. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure. The VMAX were so fast. We were, we were making probably 120 horsepower out of the uh, the uh, cider we ran those. We went to, that to 187 horsepower out of the VMAX 4. And uh, I honestly, the first race at Brainerd, uh, uh, Minnesota, first day, I went in the first round, but the uh, second round was the snow dust. And uh, Sunday, snowdust was so bad. The track was getting so rough. Couldn't see the, couldn't see enough. And Mike Steve wanted to win that one. But uh, the VMAX four was was gaining so much speed at the end of the straightaway. Still, still climbing so that mm. let off a half a second later than the time before. We were in the pants. So uh, I asked this in the trailer afterwards after the race. I take it off my leathers. I take it off myself. No way I'm gonna be alive at the end of the season. It's so goddamn fast. <laughs> but uh let's do it. That's that VMAX four, even like stock out of the out of the crate, still like one of the coolest sleds of all time and incredibly ahead of its time. Like way I don't want to say over engineered, but like, you know, there's a lot of cool a lot of cool technology in that sled that never really panned out for anybody else, but even I mean, we're talking what thirty years later. It's still, it's still an iconic sled. Yes, it is. Um, in fact, uh, one of the guys from friend, friend from Sweden was looking at Emil Harris. His dad was looking for one. Mm-hmm. He wanted me to go, go look at it. I, I uh, ended up being sold before I went and got a chance to look at it for him. But, mm-hmm. but uh, it was uh, when I got to a FNS Yamaha in Pennsylvania. Had a, a vintage snowmobile show at their place, and it was. Uh, some matter of the VMAX 4, but uh, one of my old four race sleds, there's actually six of my old sleds there. Oh, really? That was a VMAX 4, Fader SX, the Terminator, which was a, a uh, cider with a twin pipes on and 44 millimeter carburetors and ported cylinders, and we built 25 of those. Actually, back back up a little bit, when, when, yeah, or when ISR changed rule from 500 to 50, that's when we started building sleds on our own. Mm. We built, we built a, the Outlaw, which was a Shazer uh, with a VMAX 540 engine in it, twin cylinder. Built 20 of those probably. We built uh, 
Terminator, we built 25 of those. And then the Avalanche, we built maybe 15 Avalanche. The Avalanche was a <coughs> Larry Dodette from the crankshaft was a good friend of mine. And uh, we took the one and a half cylinders off of this exciter, cut the center cylinder down the center of the crankcase, took another right hand side end, and cut the left hand cylinder out down halfway down the crankcase, then weld them together. Get a three cylinder out of it. Did the same thing with the head, and uh, thing was a beast. Uh, eight hundred, what would it be? Five forty times one point five, and uh, CC, so whatever that is, um, and uh, they're still out there running today. Are you still riding them? Oh, that's insane! That's insane. Do you? I mean, you may. I know they're very, they're very collectible. There's entire Facebook groups dedicated to just year old race sleds. But you know, do you still have? Any of your cool race sleds? I know there's some in the Hall of Fame, but do you personally still own any of them? I do not. As yeah. I said, I sold a sold their head because I'm just playing. Keep racing. My car, my snowmobile. That's that's rough. That's. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it makes sense at the time, but I'm sure looking back, you're like, God, I would, I would love to have a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I would do with it. No, I mean, I'm sitting there and looking collecting dust bellies. Uh... It's fair. It's fair. So, I, my leathers I donated to the Hall of Fame, or going to the Hall of Fame. I leathered my helmet from 92 and the V-Max 4. Because uh, John, L, John uh, Bertolino, is, his name, he has uh, restored a bunch of my old stuff. He's got the, he's got the V-Max 4s and, and uh, Siders and, and SXs and a bunch of sleds. It's, it's cool that there's people still out there obviously preserving all the, the stuff. Like I, I got to go to the hall of fame a couple months ago for the first time and see some of your old sleds. It's just, it's, it's always wild walking into the, the hall of fame or any of these other collectors things where you're like, you just wonder like if half these sleds ever got crushed until you show up at a place and they're sitting there, like basically right how they looked when they came off the track. Like I it's know. super cool. As I, when I went to the show in, in Pennsylvania Mm-hmm. There was six sleds there. I was like, where do you guys get these things? And, <laughs> you know, there was a, somebody bought it and, or traced it back to to a couple people, found it, you know, and they restored it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty wild. Attention snowmobile racers. When it comes to dominating the track, trust the experts at Woody's Traction and Control. Their cutting-edge products are engineered for peak performance, providing unmatched grip and control in every turn. Don't let the competition catch up. Upgrade your sled with Woody's Traction and Control products today. Visit www.woodystraction.com and experience the winning difference. Woody's Traction and Control, where precision meets victory on the snow. So in your like those last couple of years as you're racing sleds full time, like when did you start kind of kind of kind of eyeing up what life was going to look like beyond at least your immediate racing career? Like what were you kind of looking at as the next chapter? Well, I- to understand when I was racing cars or snowmen, I was also racing cars. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started in 1980, uh, late 80s, racing a modified a local track, NASCAR modified. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, which was the biggest class, I started off in the biggest class. Why not? Why, why not? Actually, yeah. Um, when I found out right away that they asked me, when Maynard Charlie asked me, car, he was a car builder. I would like to run my cars. Loose or tight, throw them loose. 
Yeah, that's the way they run the snow mill. <laughs> Asheville car is a different story. Very different. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you got 600 horsepower and <laughs> you know, a certain line the tire. So they were hard hockey pucks, too, because they were uh, inspired tire removal. And uh, it was a different bowie. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, after we'll get into the race course a little while. But, um, Back when the back in the uh, snowmobile stuff, I uh, was racing the cars at the same time, so it's kind of hard to even have the time to think about uh, what we were keeping in the little sleds or or selling them or mm-hmm. when people wanted to buy them then. So we were selling them. <clears throat> so uh, that's why I recently modified the Lancaster. I Lancaster uh, Speedway mm-hmm. went on to race the. Uh, Rudy Dash series, NASCAR Rudy Dash series in mm-hmm. South was a, uh, a car was like a mid size body, not, not a full size, you know, with a four cylinder engine. And uh, my teammate was Sean Robinson. And uh, ended up running good at those races, but never, never, never won one out here. the second way, but they did one of those cars. And my, my brother Bob is crew chief and, um, the uh, NASCAR Speedway Super Series mm-hmm. um, with a, a NASCAR Sportsman Super, Super, Super yeah, NASCAR Sportsman Series car, which was a, a cup car, an outdated cup car with like a little bit of luminous on the cup races. We were on the, the uh, previous model, a Monte Carlo SS in the Sportsman Series, and he had a E55 motor with a uh, two-barrel carburetor. So book cup cars are making about 650 horsepower. And the Bush cars are making about 500 horsepower. These are about 350 horsepower. Mm-hmm. But they raced uh, about 20 races over the course of two years. And we won seven of them. Charlotte and then Pocono. And my brother Bob was there. Uchi, and he said he would see things moving that weren't moving. He was a very dynamic thinker. Was this uh, very much like a a privateer family effort? Like, were you guys still just driving to the races with a with a flatbed trailer? Absolutely. <laughs> oh no, we had we we were it was private privately funded. Me, but I used my my snowmobile track trailer I had in '92 we to haul that car down south. And those guys from down south were kind of was running. They were the legend cars down there, mm-hmm. and they they would see the Yamaha on the side of our truck, and they come over me and wanted to modify their Supposedly stock uh, legend car motors. <laughs> I wish I didn't know anything about. <laughs> Did I mean when you first got there? I mean, you know, guys in in the Northeast would probably have recognized you if you pulled up to a local short track. But as you got kind of into some of the the lower ranks in NASCAR, like, did any of those guys know who you were, or were you just some just some guy that showed up to race? Um, well, we we had the interest of the snowmobile people down there. There's a lot of a lot of guys in the north. We're working in the south in the NASCAR because they, they work faster than the guys down south too. And uh, I, there was one guy in particular, his name was Cheech Gardy. He was a he was a foreman at uh, the 25 car for Tim Richmond, mm-hmm. he was a shop foreman. And we got got to know him very well. We got some good friends. And he was buying snowmobile parts for me in North Carolina. And then one day I asked him, What are you, how are you doing with snowmobile? What are you doing? He said, I'm from the north and I just I go back and forth riding. But um, yeah. 
kind of favorite. We played the Piper Mus and some other favorite stuff. But uh, he and I still talk today. But uh, he uh, helped me get started in the buying a car for the, the Sportsman Series. And they, there was a lot of old cup cars and bush cars around. It was legal. But having a good one was something that we had, had to really look at him. There was some beat, beat up stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, ended up running good there. And the first race was, uh, the only thing was announced. I haven't heard of the dash here. And uh, I heard that we were down in Charlotte or Daytona testing on the way back home. Actually, I asked the guy in the airplane that was telling me about this series of NASCAR was going to run. All this Sportsman Super Series, yeah, Super Speedway Series, mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh, only did we have a, have a rule book uh, or a set of rules, not a rule book, we were a rule book, and a set of rules and uh, what they had to be. And uh, they said they were going to have one race, which they ended up having about 20. But um, the uh, Ford Burton sat in the pool. First race and 100 cars swung up for, for 30, 40 spots. Uh, 100 cars there. And uh, Robert Burton sat in the pole. Jack Spray and I went side by side for the, for the win at the end and beat him. And uh, it was one of the seven that we won. And uh, um, um, but I, I turned that into a, a my bush, bush car, first bush car I had. We uh, ran at Rockingham, and it was my uh, first race I ran. Mm-hmm. Qualified 14th, and finished 20, 20 something. In fact, it was Jeff Gordon's first race, too. Mm. And he, qualified, he qualified the outside pole and then crashed into the race. But uh, we were parked next to each other, so we had to know him pretty good. <laughs> we may have had points, and we were parked on the boondocks. Everything was done by points down there. But it, or you get your tires in, or you park. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're the last point, you have the, the worst position you get. I remember sitting at uh, Michigan the National Speedway, waiting to get our tires mounted. I practice started already, and I still didn't have my tires mounted because we were last in point. But uh, I, yeah, that was a fun time. That, that class was an awesome class. We had guys like. Burton and me place to start out and uh, be competitive. You get the experience on the super speedway. One thing I lacked when I went down and down there and ran was uh, I only ran about a year and a half of a uh, modified period. Mm-hmm. I lacked all that short time I should have started in street stock, worked my way up, got all the short time experience before we going down there. Once I, went, once I got to my shot, the 17 car and Rodney Reiser, it was uh. I didn't have the experience to be successful. Could have been. But the guy that replaced me went on to be uh, with the cup champion in uh, 2003. Yeah, it was Kenseth, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so basically, yeah, we sort of, I, have my, I have one of my suits with his name Soto on top of mine. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is, though, Tim. If you look back in the timeline, you basically paved the way for Matt Kenseth. Without you yeah. being right there, Matt Kenseth would not become who he became, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's for, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, Robbie was, Robbie was a good guy, but he, yeah, when, we, when I first worked up with him and uh, 
before doing that deal. We had, I had to craft signals as a sponsor, and uh, he had uh, the cars. We kind of put the deal together. He couldn't, he didn't make it as a driver himself. And uh, we put that deal together and he do use his cars and to craft money, which was very limited to say the least. Most teams were getting 150,000, I mean, $1.5 million. And then we only had 800,000. We had to skimp on everything we did. We were living at the shop in the trailer, working, working on the cars too. And uh, it was, uh, then Kinsey came along when I got hurt with Bristol. He, uh, he got him to drive the, drive the car and he had Mark Martin here. He had his, his 60 car with Mark Martin go in, drove, and they were dominant in the Bush series. He had lots of sub information. Robbie and I were both kind of putting our mix matching our setups. We both had run before. He wasn't very successful either. So when I, uh, uh, people don't need to take that into consideration when Kansas has jumped in there and did much better than I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you're, you say that, that that injury basically ended what, I mean, it ended your future in, in NASCAR at that time, and I'm sure Kansas having that, that success right out of the, the gate didn't really help your cause, but you know, let's say hypothetically you don't have that injury. What's the what's the trajectory of you in, in stock car racing if that injury doesn't happen, do you think? Oh boy, I know that's a tough one. I uh my trajectory was going up pretty good. Pretty steep as far out with but um how I how I ended up getting that craft deal was uh um Leon Fox with my partners with uh with um yeah, Derek, Derek Hope. Mm-hmm. One of the Daytona 500. Yep. Um, he uh, had a bush car. He was driving, he was driving somebody else's bush car and he had a car himself. He wasn't running. He put me in that car and I ran uh, races. Did pretty well with it. And, uh, and at that time, I was parked next to the people who had their craft deal for the next year. And then I hooked up with them. And that's how I got, got my started. Um, it's so, so tough to get the money down there. It's tough to do that. Oh, yeah. I had to, I, mean, I was so tired when I mean, that whole deal ended. So tired of kissing people in the ass trying to get good brides. It was such a pain in the ass. I, <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, I had sucked it up enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, it's, it's, it, it's tough. I mean, that's a, I mean, today it's even worse, but that's a huge, that's a huge part of, of NASCAR is the image and the sponsorship. You can't just be fast anymore. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I look at the list of, uh, guys that were behind me and I won the poll there. Atlanta. It's a pretty impressive list. Mm-hmm. We got Mark Martin. And, uh, I'm on the wall here. The list. Remind me every once in a while. But yeah, Steve Park and Bobby Labonte, Todd Bryan, Jeff Burton, Michael Rothman, Elton Sawyer, Dale Jarrett, Michael Waltrip, Kelly Sandler, top five, top ten. And uh, I name it the top of the list. It's it's a it's a great what if, Tim. It it yeah, it, yeah. it really is, yeah. if I'm being honest. Like, you know, we obviously love you for the for the snowmobile side of your career, but there's just like this little like God, that would have been sick. That would have been really, really cool. Yeah. Believe me, I 
take that about, about it off myself. Yeah. One thing I got a chance to do with that, uh, I wouldn't have had a chance to do was to race with snow cross racing with Brett mm-hmm. and do the and do the cup lights. You probably don't even know about the cup lights, mm-hmm. but that's a cup light is a car that I designed when I uh, early on started building one deck in the probably nineties. Uh, oh, it would have been the eighties, and uh, we never finished it. But it was a was uh, going to be a car that took a snowmobile engine and uh, a three-quarter scale car and uh, was be a, the power of a snowmobile engine and a car that was light, small. We ended up building 50 of these cars. And uh, this happened in 1998. Yeah, I started a company called Tim Bender Race Cars. We built 50 cars, started a series. And ran, we're still running today down in Alabama, actually. Really? Um, yeah. It's a car for as fast as a late model on a local short track, talking fast. They mm-hmm. go karts, you your full on roll cage, um, just as smaller than a conventional car, three quarter scale cup car. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the cup lights responsible by MBNA Bank. And uh, we use. Several guys. Well, I'll tell you, one guy that uh, TJ Major is one of their competitors. He was he ended up Dale, Dale Jr. ended up buying the car, and uh, he said he Dale Jr. spotter. That was Dale Jr. spotter. He would break his lousy down there. But uh, that was a good deal. And then, of course, then we got into snowcross racing again. Well, yeah. Right. Let's uh let's move into some of that snow stuff because this is like, you know, you ended up basically forming your own performance brand in in Bender Racing with a lot of, a lot of pretty cool pieces of kid, and then ultimately you get that phone call from from Polaris to come help with with team at the time, so it sounds like I mean even though you had kind of quote unquote <laughs> left your snow career behind, you never really ventured too far out of it. Like you always kind of had one foot in the door in snow. No, I remember uh, the uh, when Team Industries was uh, was faltering as a race team. They weren't very competitive. And they had uh, had some issues. I had heard, heard they were looking for somebody to do be a team manager for them. I talked to Rick Bates, and Rick worked for me in uh, 1992 with a VMAX 4. He built a VMAX 4 chassis in my shop. And uh, he worked for me for that year, and then he was now worth Polaris. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had uh, put in a good word for me, but team interest was And I, I talked to them about it two days later. They were out of my shop and they flew out there in an airplane. And uh, we made a deal to run the team industry's team with the Crapo's brothers, Sean and Curtis Crapo, mm-hmm. and Brett racing for them. And uh, we went to, uh, went to uh, Duluth with two pro riders and a sport rider. Came out of there with one sport rider. <laughs> <laughs> both scraper, both scraper, both got hurt. One broke his leg. One broke his knee out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, Brett was racing, racing sport, and uh, we should we built him a mod to um, early on. The first reverse engine, not first, but the reverse engine pipes out of the seat, steering, steering over the motor, um, motor backwards and carburetors. Facing forward, and uh, 
we're going to yeah. do the same as on that farm of Wensley Bruce. Mm. And uh, we built it just to have, a, have some fun with it and see how we can do. But uh, you never even ended up riding it. It was so young, so it was like 13. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, he. Brett became pretty good, I guess. He became pretty yeah. good at snowcross, I guess. Yeah, he went on to <laughs> win three nationals in a row at the. Uh, actually, the. Uh, um, that year that he won three in a row, DJ won the points. Brett finished second, and David finished third. Mm-hmm. It was one of my uh, highlights of my career. Well, yeah, that, that was going to be one of my topics because between between team industries and and henches, like there's a there's a really really long period of time. There's a lot of championships. There's a lot of wins. There's a lot of really talented guys. But like, I mean, what was kind of the I don't want to say the the peak or the highlight, but if you had to kind of pick one, maybe one win or one championship, what what would it be? Um, it'd be in two thousand. 17 when Peter Narsa won the gold medal in the next games and Cody won the 2017 Pro Open Championship. Mm-hmm. We had the last time we ran Monsad, which uh, don't even start on that. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, uh, I'd say it was that year. When uh when you got the the call to come help with with team, I'm curious, was it kind of like a prerequisite for you? Like I will help, but I want to build the sled myself. Like was that a huge part of your decision to be able to to get back into that? Um, was it well not not that uh, conscious? Not conscious, it wasn't, but unconsciously it was. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the team industry guys came to my shop. We were building race cars at the time. We were building a couple of cars. They saw what we were capable of, and they knew that we knew what we were doing. So, uh, and those guys were Dave Osterman and one of the liaisons between team and me, and uh, the great guy. He uh, saw right away what we were capable of, and put his faith in us. I mean if you ask anybody who and yeah i i don't need to start the stock versus mod argument but you ask any of the guys who love basically any old sleds or race sleds or mods or anything it's still a tim bender built race sled that ends up at the top of the list like the the guys who love iqrs it's always a tim bender sled the guys who love early 2000s wsa sleds it's always a tim bender sled like your your sleds in snowcross at least are still super iconic and fan favorites even after all these years oh i uh i'm out of help <laughs> sean ray was a uh, team engineer he was a big part of the uh of the alliances we had the alliances with uh Gender Motorsports, Little Valley, Clayton, Carlson. Mm-hmm. We were rubbish racing with Hendrick of uh, Snowmobiles. Mm-hmm. We, used their, we used money from them. But they paid us to be in the alliance to, for our research and development of our engines and, and pipes and clutching and suspension packages. We shared with everybody. So we had a wealth of knowledge there. And Sean helped me uh, build some pretty, pretty solid motors. And, uh, 
pretty cool stuff. I wasn't going to ask you, but I'm going to get raked over the coals if I don't. So you, you don't have to say much. You can skip it if you want. I don't want to get you in trouble. But what are your thoughts about stock sleds and snowcross versus mods? As much as you're willing to say. Um, oh, well, once I knew it, once I knew it was going to happen, I, I helped, I helped it happen. Cause I, uh, it was going to happen either way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was putting down my own coffin, but I, uh, that, that really completely took the alliance out of the deal, mm-hmm. uh, which we, you know, we're sharing information, which is huge. And, uh, um, my thoughts on it are, I wish we, wish we had gone to open chassis. Mm-hmm. They still, at least open chassis. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're, it's so ridiculous to run a, run a, uh, in a mod sled. First of all, a mod sled with a headlight. It's too, the headlight has to work. It's ridiculous. I mean, what were we thinking? Uh, you have to cover it up, but it has to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, that alone is a, a spoofing of who I ever heard of. And then, uh, but, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't hurt the racing any. Mm-hmm. Um, hurt us a little bit because we had a power advantage before. But, uh, and now we don't. But uh, I uh, answer that would be officially be uh, a I'm off the record. <laughs> now, but like I said, I, uh, once I once I knew that it was going to happen one way or another, I, I helped. Mm-hmm. I helped it happen because at least we got it done in a way that, well, except for the headlight. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. Like to get in there. But I mean, this year, they, even, they all, all bump, we used to be able to run lightweight bumpers. Can't run like I change the bumper there now. This year. Yeah, I you know the I see it I've seen it from both sides because like I, I obviously love I love mod sleds. I think they were a, a super cool and you know, I was only really around for like the I don't know if you even want to call it like the third the third era of mods that weren't even really mods. It was just like you know, twin pipes and, and maybe heads and that was it, you know, like I, there's a couple different eras of it, but what I will say is these days, the, the stock race sleds out of the crate are really, really good. And I do think there is, there is something to be said of that being driven by the, by not having mod sleds available that you had to, the OEM had to shoulder all the burden of developing a really good stock sled. You know, some people like that, some people don't, but I do think that I do think that's a fair statement. Yeah, that is a fair statement. Um, they are they are better. You can take them out of the crate and race them today. Couldn't do that before. Mm-hmm. But you know, mod kit is not expensive, and guys are. I don't know. I just I love the mods. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. But. Uh... All right, Tim. Let's uh, let's transition into the the Woody's Would You Rather segment. So I'm gonna give you two scenarios that are not ideal. They they both kind of suck, and you're gonna have to pick which one you'd rather do, and you're gonna have to justify it to me. So you ready for it? Yeah. So would you rather race Texas on a 110 degree day, or race Eagle River at a negative 30 degree day? Negative 30 Eagle River. 
Yeah. <laughs> they get out of the heat and get out of the cold. <laughs> I always said that the only reason I could do this physically is because I had a trailer at 70 degrees. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't do that down in Texas. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I'm a Northeast guy. I can't, like, 100 degrees is, is my stopping point for even leaving my house. So I hear you. Uh, although, although I'm not going to get the blessing like the cold weather. I shiver at 60 now. So. <laughs> so next one, too much understeer or too much oversteer? Too much oversteer. Yeah. yeah definitely the sled. That way, as I said before, the car ain't so much, but, but uh, I like to slide it through the corner a little bit. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Especially where the... Next one for you. Less wedge on a car or less bite on a sled? Um, let's play to the sled, I'd say. Yeah. Let's play to the sled. Yeah, I guess that probably kind of very similar to the to the oversteer part. Like just just because yeah. of how you ride, you could probably probably deal with that a lot easier. So next one, would you rather have rain on asphalt and you have to drive on it, or rain on ice and you have to obviously race on it? Uh, you know, I broke my leg doing a uh, race on ice. Mm. I, I mean, uh, race on rain on ice. I did, we were at Velcro one year, 90, uh, early 90s. And it was 60 degrees and raining on Friday, zero and uh, frozen on Sunday or Saturday. And uh, the hay bales had frozen solid. I hit one of those, fell off and hit one of those and put my femur. Mm. So I got a a special place for rain in the, <laughs> my heart. I still feel today. So I was pinned pin, pin my hip to my knee. Yeah. I have a special I have a special place in my knee for rain, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. Last one for you. So it's gotta be on a modern, you know, twenty twenty four snowcross track. Would you rather race a phaser, stock phaser out of the crate, or a V Max four stock out of the crate? Phaser SX or Phaser? Uh, the original Phaser, not the SX. Oh, wow. That's a, kill, kill me. I'm going to hurt either way. Yep. Uh, probably, uh, probably Phaser still. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Phaser stock phaser was a stock one, and then was a, not a poor example of a good friend. end. But, but uh, the next one was, was so hard to ride and over bigger bumps. And you asked me once what I thought the, the difference between snow car or looking at things and racing today was and racing back in the day. Mm. And uh, it's got to be the tracks because you walk on a snow crash track, you look at the depth of those holes, and you stand in the bottom of the hole, you can't see out that deep. Mm-hmm. People can't, don't realize how well, big, big those holes are from the outside looking in on TV, especially. It doesn't make any, any, any conception of what they're like in real life. Oh, for the, guys, sure. the fact that the guy can race across the tops of those things and it just blows my mind. But uh, I had some of the best riders in the business doing it for me. And I uh, was fortunate to have guys like TJ and, and Levi and Brett, Peter Narsa, Cody, Oscar Norm, Neil Har, Robin Page. The list of names is mm-hmm. incredible. Um, and to have those guys riding our stuff and having confidence in us 
um, was a player. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. If you if you go through the roster of of riders that have ridden your sleds over the years, it's 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 a who's who of snowcross history for sure. Especially with the alliance, you know, we had uh, Matt Chudnick and and Ross Martin and um, John Goodman. Mm-hmm. And they all they all love the mods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. why, why don't you tell me how you really feel, Tim? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I understand why it happened, but it's, it's a shame that it had to happen. Yeah, I one of the earlier episodes I I did on this podcast I did with Greg Marrier, and you probably know Greg from over the years. But uh, you know, we we chatted at the because you know he was heavily involved in Yamaha's snowcross team when it was with Boss and it eat like. When Yamaha had to pull out because the mod rule got changed back then too, like it's it's eerily similar. Like it's it's a tough time in the sport where it's very mixed feelings for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Greg, Greg is a good friend of mine. Oh yeah, back in yeah back in the day. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a good guy. He gets like one or two texts from me a week just <laughs> asking super bogus questions about history. So it's <laughs> he's super great with that stuff. Yeah, um, but also I had a fortune. I was very fortunate. I had guys to work with too, like Rick Bates and mm-hmm. Sean Ray, and and uh, guys like that that know what what you know what's what. Tom Rayer Jr. Mm-hmm. Tom Rayer Sr. was my probably the, one of my biggest supporters, mm-hmm. and say the least. And uh, shame when he retired, mm-hmm. but Sr. doing a great job there. So, ben Hayes, Ben Hayes used to work for me. Oh yeah, um, yeah. See the name of one of your podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I texted him a little bit before this uh, before this episode. I was like, "Hey, do you got any do you got any good Tim Bender stories?" He's like, "Honestly, <laughs> just let him talk. I just want to hear him talk." <laughs> yeah, I can tell you some veggie stories. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Oh. I was just chatting with one of my colleagues today at work, and it's, you look at the, you know, the power sports industry is this, but the snowmobile industry is, you know, just like a microcosm. It's so small. It's just one giant cesspool. Everybody knows everybody. Like it's just, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah, that's what I like about it, though. I mean, snow, snowcross is still small enough where everybody knows everybody, and everybody, everybody in anybody's trailer and car or something or whatever. Car racing is a lot more. Uh, Cutthroat because mm-hmm. everybody's in for a sponsor, and as soon as you turn around, you stab in the back because mm-hmm. um, the, the money is so, so hard to get. Or that's the kind of money you need to do that. For sure. For sure. Well, let's move into some of the last couple questions I have for you, Tim. So, yeah. favorite, uh, and this could be one of yours, this could be one that you built, could be anything, but favorite race sled of all time for you? Max 4. Yep. No question. Mm-hmm. That thing was so uh, so fast. It's when uh, Tom Rager pushed to get that rule change from for Skidoo, uh, from maybe uh, players at the time. I don't even know, but uh, players from Skidoo um, pushed to get the rule change from you couldn't run the VMAX four. Mm. Um, that's one thing he and I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I read that about it now. But uh, actually, uh, it's a funny story. Bill Rader, I ended up having a desk next to it at Polaris. Is, uh, he passed away now, but he's a great guy. He, uh, I went to my VMAX 4 that year in 1992. Um, he won at uh, Ashland, I think, Ashland, Wisconsin. And he disqualified me for being too light. And, and my son was, I had race car shield in my, in my trailer. And it was, I clearly, I put it on there and I could clearly show him where it was five pounds too heavy. Mm-hmm. But he insisted that their scale was too light. couldn't <laughs> use it at time. And uh, so if I thought it was too light, I'm going to take it a victory lap. I would have kicked a little snow on the track. I would, he's like, no, you didn't. So, but I, I later, I didn't even know that until years after we'd been sitting here and just had my son. He was. I did that. Holy God. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. So, I mean, you kind of touched on some of the guys that, that have raced for you over the years, but if you had to pick one, and I don't know if you, you're allowed to pick Brett if you want, but who's the most talented racer you think you've ever worked with? Cody Cam. Cody Cam? No question. No question. Natural talent wise. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily really strongest or the toughest, but he was the most natural talent. When, uh, I first saw him ride it. I remember uh, seeing him ride him for the first time. I paid attention to him. Um, seems incredible the way you could do that sled. Just throw it around and made it look real easy. He's riding a whole different style than uh, most people. Yeah, and he, I mean, he, he still looks that way. I mean, we're, what, 12 years into his pro snowcross career? And he still yeah. he still rides just as fast. He's still up. Yeah. He could win a race at any given time. It's yeah. it's wild. Um, you said I could pick Brett. I would have picked Brett, but uh, he he gets hurt so much that he. Uh, I think if he wouldn't have got, got the injury he had, he would have been really on fire in sport. Oh, for he sure. Had, he had a riding style that was really smooth and really unusual. He had riding his feet back, or Cody riding his feet forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cody's locks his feet into stirrups and never moved him. Brett would move around more in the running board. But uh, tell you what, there's no feeling like when you're winning races, if you're, you watch your kids do it, it's unbelievable how much more satisfying it is than to yourself. Oh, for sure. I could, yeah, I could imagine any of these guys that I talk to, even if they're you know, they're basically looking back at their post-racing career and they're just, they're like, you get to a point where the guys that you're helping, you get more excited about them winning. And I bet that's just magnified when it's obviously family. Yes, sure. When, when, uh, when you won at Geneva at uh, 2013, mm-hmm. it was like Geneva is the ultimate track. And that was the ultimate race and he won the ultimate race there, which was pretty cool. And that was, uh, was that the same, was that the weekend that, he, what, he won, Gula won the open title, and Levi won the stock? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, 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 Levi didn't win stock. He won Levi third in the open. He might have won stock. He won the, he won the stock yeah. championship, though, that yeah, weekend. Yeah, well, well, not, not the same weekend, though. No. Oh, okay. Year, year gotcha. Levi won in a different year than King. But the fact that we could take those guys, Cody, Levi and TJ all the championship wins was pretty phenomenal, actually. Pretty sweet. Yeah. So, next one for you. What's been the biggest change in snowmobile racing since you got involved, you know, way back when? And it could be good or bad. 
biggest change? It's got to be in the racetrack itself. Mm-hmm. The hole in the hole that I was talking about before. We knew we were, when we raced Snowcross, we had we had jumps that were three feet tall, four feet tall, maybe at the highest. Mm-hmm. We landed on ice. They never knew what downside it was. And uh, the fact that these guys can go through those holes as fast as they do with suspension work is better than It's got to be that combination. Mm-hmm. What would you say, you know, the entire body of work of your own racing championships, your own championships as a, as a team manager and crew chief and all this stuff, what's the most you know, what's the most proud moment that you have from your career? Um, just be winning with, uh, with, uh, DJ and Brett and the guy who was in third. Mm-hmm. Don't get any better than that. Mm-hmm. And that was a, that was a fun time. We were with some good motors and good plugs and, and I had to do that again. Yeah, that oh, was... I look back. I look back at at some of, at some of the things I accomplished and don't even think about it today. But I, I look at, at that snow. I think back to that snow and show in Pennsylvania vintage show. I see those six sleds. I see all all the work we shipped around into those stuff. Pretty amazing. We uh, we actually built that stuff. I'm pretty proud of that too. Yeah, and I would imagine the fact that you know, all these years later, they're still super collectible. Like people are still incredibly impressed with them. So yeah, I mean the, the, the work of art of one of your race sleds is probably pretty damn cool. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, all of a sudden we don't, we just, uh, it's amazing. So last one for you and I'll have to, I'll have to kind of give this one a lead up and, and I don't want to get you in trouble, so whatever you're willing to say. But uh, Dale Jr. has his podcast called the Dale Jr. Download, and he always asks crew chiefs for their best, like, quote-unquote innovation story, which is basically like a gray area that is kind of cheating, but technically not, and basically sometimes they got caught, sometimes they didn't. Like, do you got a cool innovation that you'd be willing to share? Or if not, I don't want to get you in trouble either. Um, it has to be the Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, you know what that was? Mm-mm. It was a, a shaft that went alongside the front torque arm to the shaft. We had a foot lever on the uh, outside of the running board. It went to the tunnel and had a shift lever on the outside of the running board. Shift lever looks like a, it was a uh, motorcycle Kickstarter, it looked like. Mm-hmm. Looked like, and what he would do is he would kick it down and lock it down, and it would pull the front limiter strap up. And we used that for years. Now people, nobody know what you're doing there. We kept it covered up, and uh, they would take plus my ball about one year, and I, so I put a nitrogen control one in there. The same thing. But uh, we would we would take and come out of the hole with a long limiter strap, and long enough to get the feet out the ground. And then when you're going to the, the corner, you kick this down, lock it down, pull the front limiter strap up, leave the front track off the ground so we turn. That is clear. In my mind, it was one of the best things we ever did for handling. <laughs> you have you a decent hole shot. Somebody, somebody fast once told me, no easier place to pass people than on the starting line. 
mm-hmm. and uh, I go away until then. Um, and uh, so we, we would, if you didn't do that, you had to have a limiter shape up where you tight where it was, get the front of the rail out the ground, you would uh, sit and spin in a swing line. So uh, the way I might say, you always had the skis out the ground and start. And uh, we had a Kickstarter, which skis got played around every two feet. That's that's it, like I said earlier, just the the creativity, like just from from some of the minds like you, like some of the stuff you some of the stuff you guys would come up with over the years of just even like down to the milliseconds of performance gains and stuff like that. It's it's always cool to hear it. Yeah, yeah, for me too. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, I mean, we can uh, we can wrap it up for you then, Tim. Again, I. I really appreciate the time and, and all the stories you were willing to share. I think uh, I definitely enjoyed it, and I'm sure all the listeners are going to enjoy it as well. So I uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. Absolutely. Tim Bender on the Carbide Podcast. Such a fun guy to talk to. Despite all the accolades and recognition within our community, still just a down-to-earth person that loves to bench race. Big thanks to Tim for all of his time and for sharing his stories, and to his son Brett for helping make the connection. By far one of the fastest families in the sport, just in case that one wasn't obvious. Big thanks to the listeners for coming back each and every week. The snowmobile industry is hurting a little bit right now, as I'm sure you can imagine, so hopefully the show is reminding you how much you love the sport, even when you aren't riding. Thanks again to Woody's for their continued support. They're a huge part of what we do these days, so if you bump into Rick at a race, be sure to thank him as well. Follow us on socials, tell your friends, and as always, take care.